0: But first, let me let me put the scriptures up on the screen, or you can turn to it in your Bible. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2, and then we're also going to be in Philippians chapter 2. I've, I've pasted them together for you on the screen, and I'll just read it. And um, But first, let me pray. Jesus, I pray that you would guide us through this sacred scripture and this sacred passage, that you would help us to know you in a deep and powerful way, and that you would show us what all of this means, and show us some new or fresh or refresh uh, some aspects of Christmas that we've long forgotten, um, and make these truths new to us again. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would make your home in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2. Let's start in verse 6. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord, and this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and laying in a manger. And suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to whom, on whom his favor rests. And then we'll flip over to Philippians 2 at this point, start in verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, instead of that, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made or born in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even the death on the cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Um, it, it, may, it may seem um, maybe silly for a grown man to say this, but I am one of those people I, I'm one of those people that never um, grew out of the love of Christmas. I was fascinated about it when I was a kid. <clears throat> and instead of not growing, growing out of that love for Christmas, I have to go on to report that I've only grown into it. I love Christmas. Um, I wouldn't call myself a fanatic. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not talking about someone who, you know, wears the sweaters, you know, when Christmas time comes or decorates the house to where no one can look at it without squinting or thing, you know, things like that. I mean, that's not what I'm talking about. Um, what I'm saying is I actually, truly, I really do, I actually believe in the power of Christmas to heal the world. I really do. I really do. I believe Christmas is the hope of the world today and actually the power, has the power to fix what's broken in our world. And I believe it will. I believe it will. I believe there's real power in Christmas. And it's this belief and bold proclamation of power that should give Christmas our attention. It should give us, it, it should give us, it should give us. Get our attention every year and every time we think about it. If you spend time looking at the story, you'll find that it's audacious. It has a bold claim, it's daringly bold, and it proclaims that it's, proclamation that, it's this proclamation that gives Christmas so much more grit than the tinsel and the lights. And the warm houses and the trees and the presents and the warm and fuzzy feelings that we give it today. It actually has so much more grit than that. So much more power than that. Quite simply, Luke is telling us the amazing story of an impoverished peasant family traveling about 80 miles on foot. Think of that. 80 miles on foot from Nazareth to Bethlehem while Mary is extremely pregnant, a 13, 14-year-old girl extremely pregnant. And when you make, when they make it to Bethlehem, it becomes time for the baby to be delivered, and there's no safe place for them to, for her to deliver the kid, for for her to give birth. No one had room, or no one, no one would, or no one could take them in. The only place they could find to give birth was a cave where they kept animals. Where they gave shelter to animals. Luke tells us that they put the child in a quote manger. A a literal translation for that word is feeding trough. Think of that, you moms. Now, if we stop, if we stopped right there, if we just, if that was the end of the story, that would be enough. In any culture, in any time, in any place, in any society, that would be enough to get our attention and to and to um, grieve our hearts. Can you imagine? It's it's a remarkable story. Can you imagine if someone came to us today telling the story of a 15-year-old pregnant girl who came to Seattle, couldn't find anywhere to give birth, so she delivered her child behind a dumpster in Ballard? That alone, you would feel that. We would go, what? Really? Really? But even after all of that, as remarkable as that is, this story isn't just remarkable, it's an extraordinary story. It goes beyond beyond that. Luke goes on to proclaim that this child, born in hardship and abject poverty, is actually the answer to the world's problems. That's the rest of the story. This child is the savior of, of the world, according to Luke. This child born in squalor is the most important figure the world will ever know, will ever see, will ever hear about, this impoverished child. And that message, that Christmas message, has echoed and reverberated through the corridors of time to every generation since and to us even today. It still stirs us. It's an audacious, bold claim. Every year, heaven proclaims again and again that this baby is the answer to the problem of evil and suffering in the world. Christians believe that Jesus is the answer to all the brokenness we see out there and in here. Evil and suffering, um, that's one thing that we find complete consensus on. One thing that we're not divided about in this world. People have debated, uh, Scott and I were just talking about this this morning, people have debated and philosophized about the presence of, and problem of evil, suffering, and pain, or just a sense of wrongness in the world since recorded history. People have debated that, and people have, they might disagree on the cause of it, or the nature of evil, or even what to properly label it, what to call it, but all agree that there is a problem here, that there's a problem. People see for themselves what seems to be meaningless. There's tyranny, there's genocide, there's infanticide, there's disease, there's abuse, there's slavery, there's racism, there's corruption, and all of these things have been around since the dawn, since the beginning, virtually the beginning. And that is what makes this Christmas story so profound and compelling. Listen, Uh, In its essence, Christmas is not warm and cozy. Luke doesn't paint a picture of a family around a nice big table filled with food, a roaring fire in the hearth, and rosy cheeks and laughter, and playing a game night. Those things are fine, but that's not the story we're reading here. That's not what we're talking about. No, this is gritty. It's cold, it's dark, and from that cold and darkness out goes this proclamation of hope. Out of that, a light has dawned, and I've come to believe in this proclamation. In fact, I've come to stake my whole inner life on it for myself and for my family and for the world around me, for my, my profession. This is why I do what I do. I believe in this. I really do. I believe in it. And without exception, every year this conviction only gets deeper in my heart. I become more and more in love with, convicted by, deepened by Christmas. And I learn something new every year. And I want to show you what I learned this year. I'm going to show you. This is what we're going to um, learn. These two passages tell us that Christmas has the power to heal the world and will eradicate the world from evil and suffering through at least three things. Probably more, but here's what I found. Number one, through glory. The idea of glory. Secondly, um, Christmas is the power to cure suffering through suffering itself. Through suffering. And thirdly, Um, Christmas has the power to continue cleansing and healing this world through Christmas-minded people, other fanatics, you could say, that understand and believe in it. First, we're going to talk about glory, then we're going to pause, and we're going to think about it, and we're going to meditate on it, we might interact and participate with this scripture. The word glory shows up twice in Luke's story, okay? The first time, it's pretty abstract, We don't really quite know what it means. There were shepherds out at night keeping watch over their flocks, and an angel comes, and it says, the glory of the Lord shone round about them. So, pretty abstract. We still have a lot of questions when we read that, like, what did the glory of the Lord look like? What was that, right? Was it something they could see, or was it something that they just experienced? Uh, what, What was that like? How did they know it was the glory of the Lord. How were they able to put such a specific title on, oh, this, what's happening right now is the glory of the Lord. How did they do that? So, you see, pretty abstract. But the second time the word is used, it's used as a response to the message the angel was sent to deliver. A little bit more specific. Pick it up in verse 10. It says, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a feeding trough. That's the message. And here's the response. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God, and here was their response to the message Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. You might even say that they are proclaiming that the message of the angel is the glory of God, or is uh, to the glory of God. In other words, heaven itself breaks in on this scene here breaks in into human time and space and proclaims that the baby born in the city of David, born in a feeding trough, born in obscurity and in poverty and squalor, is God's glory on display. There's a proclamation from heaven. This kid born behind a dumpster that no one knows about or cares about, no one important anyway, this is the glory of God. Okay, the word glory is worth spending a little bit of time on because it's extremely important throughout the Bible. Uh, in fact, one of the more uh, emphasized ways that the Bible uses to, to talk about or describe God's character is that God is a God of glory. It says it over and over and over again, uh, the, that glory belongs to God, glory is ascribed to God. The word glory has a really impressive lexical range in the Bible. In the Old Testament, the word glory is the word kabod, and it means, uh, very simply, it means weight. That's what it means. It means weight. It's referring to, and what it's referring to is substance, what's real, um, things that are transcendent, what really, what's really there. It's referring to something immovable. It's referring to something eternal. It's talking about what's really real, the incorruptible things of life things that can't spoil or expire, what really is. So in, the con- in this context, it's referring to the weightiness of God. It's saying that God is the solid, substantial stuff of reality. That's what, he, what it's saying. God is what's real. What's real in this world, God is, the Bible would say, glory. He's, he's the weight. He's the substance. God can't be corrupted. He will never expire. He is the absolute upon which everything else is founded. All the uh, things that are passing away and the transient things are passing away, but they're founded on something absolute that's not going anywhere, something real, something with substance. But when you trace the word, it starts to grow in its meaning. The word begins to broaden, and it doesn't just talk about physical weight. The Bible starts assigning it to people and to things, attitudes, characters, places, those types of things to describe the weight of their value, the weight of their character. In other words, it's talking about the things in life that we all know really matter. In fact, that's another word to use, what matters, what's what's important, what really matters, what's really important. Something is glorious because it has import, it has impact because it makes a difference. It lasts. It's incorruptible. We're talking about the things that when all the other stuff passes away, this is what really matters to me. This is what, what I really give import to. It's effective. It counts. But in the New Testament, we see yet another aspect of this word even added on further uh, for the word glory. In the New Testament, the word is doxa, which is, ref- which is not just a church in Bellevue, it turns out. It's a word from the New Testament, um, which means glory, and it's a word to describe something radiant, pure, beautiful, splendid. It's describing beauty in its purest form. Something is glorious, and this denotes something that you can actually see and experience. When you see something, you say, oh gosh, that's glorious. It's used to describe something that's beautiful, something pure. So you can see this impressive impressive range to the word glory. It means weightiness, what matters, what's important, and it means that 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 weightiness, that important thing, has captured you. It's beautiful to you. It's radiant. We're overcome by this pure, radiant beauty of a person or a thing or a place. It's glorious. It's actually gripped us. It's taken our breath away, that type of an idea. Those of you that have gone hiking or, or, or enjoy the outdoors or have seen something splendid in nature and you, it, it takes your breath away, there's a glory to it. It, it demands that we give it respect, you see. That's what it's talking about. So what does this mean for for Advent? Well, put simply, in this text, heaven breaks in, the angels break into time and space, and they declare that this baby born in Bethlehem has got the glory. He is, in other words, he's what's important. He's what's really real. He's what matters. He is beauty itself. Everything beautiful that you're drawn to in this world finds its true home in him. Everything that you think you want, you're really looking for him. He is the glory. He deserves the import. He's what's matter. He's got the substance. He's got the impact of the universe, and and, and nothing compares to him in, in importance. Compared to him, nothing's important everything else that you thought was important until you see this baby, this obscure baby born in in a trough. He is what's most important. And everything beautiful is squalor compared to him. Everything radiant is worthless compared to him. Heaven is proclaiming to the world, everything you're looking for and starving for is found in this child. Drop everything and focus on on him give him the glory give him the import okay this and the implications of this give us the first elements of christmas's power to heal the world the world we're in a glory war the world is the way it is because of a glory problem the problems in your life, the problems in my life, are the way they are because of, a, of misplaced glory. We have assigned ultimate import, beauty, what really matters to us, to lesser things. And this misplaced glory is one of the things that the Bible says has caused all of the suffering in this world, all of the pain in our lives, everything. From everything as big as the... Holocaust to what comes out of you when you stub your toe. It all comes to a, to a sense of misplaced glory, misplaced import. We start thinking things that are, that are important when they're not as important as God, and that twists. That begins to tweak us. It perverts our view. It warps our insides. We start to lose our humanity at that point because we're out of whack. We're out of priority. You can break down what we see in the world and in our own lives to a sense of a lack of priority or misplaced priorities in our lives. Anything that we give glory to other than God will only warp us. Everything is striving for beauty and import. We desperately want to be important we want to be beautiful, to know that we matter. So what, we, what do we do? We wrestle, we claw, we scrape for import, for attention, no matter who it hurts in, the, in our wake. So the first call of Christmas in that sense is a call to, well, as St. As, um, Augustine said, is to reorder our loves. Augustine maintained that the, that the issue is... Um, is a is a reordering of loves we start loving others and things and people more than we love God and that causes things to be out of whack basically this is a cause of uh, this is a christmas calls us to repentance to dethrone to put him back to focus again to look to give him the glory it's a call to dethrone the people it's a call to dethrone ideas narratives memories, experiences, things that we start thinking are important, things that we start, they have a hook in us, and we start thinking, yeah, that's what I need, that's what I want, that's the truth. Christmas calls us to analyze all of those things and reprioritize under Jesus, who has all glory, and to the degree that we worship Him. This is talking about worship, To the degree that we center our lives on him, that we say you're important, you're beautiful, to that degree, you will begin to be healed. You will begin to heal. Yeah. Sure. It's a call to dethrone the people, ideas, memories, experiences and things that we have given ultimate beauty and worth to and that is twisting and perverting us and let the beauty and splendor of Jesus heal us and bring us back to wonder in him, resulting in seeing him for what he really is, the most important person in the universe. Nothing else matters. And this is why I pray that we slow down. Because our culture, we speed up for Christmas. We go, 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 go for Christmas. And the lights, and the presents, and the get to the deals before everyone else does, and the buy, and the stuff, and the get-togethers, and and all those things. We pile it on, and we, we fly through. Christmas begs us, slow down, and not abandon those things, but reprioritize those things under what's really important. To the degree that we repent and keep repenting, keep dethroning, keep adjusting our perspective and putting our eyes on Jesus and being caught up in his glory and majesty, to that degree we will heal. To that degree we will grow. To that degree the world around us will be a better place. Our relationship with God will begin to heal. Our relationship with ourselves will begin to heal. And our relationship with others will begin to heal. So, ready? Close your eyes. I want to hear a big, deep breath. <sighs> okay, point two. The second way Christmas heals the world and evil and suffering is through suffering itself. This is really interesting. Um, look at Philippians chapter 2, and let, let me just show you verses 6 through 8. It says, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And if you were to keep reading down to verse 11, you would again see the idea of glory, you would see that again. In fact, here's the thing I learned for Christmas this year. Here was my Christmas present from God to me, and that is most often in the Bible, the, term, the idea of glory and suffering are linked. Most of the time. And here's why that's a gift to us, especially in our culture. Glory and suffering are two ideas that we, especially us modern, modern folk, don't intuitively feel can be held in the same space. Those are two words that we don't feel, two ideas that we don't feel can go together, but they almost are constantly together in the Bible. And very clearly, both are very present in the Christmas story. Extremely present in the Christmas story. You've got baby Jesus declared by heaven itself to be all that matters in the universe, the most wonderful, radiant, beautiful darling of heaven, and he's born to live a life of abject suffering from beginning to end from the from the outset throughout his life to the end he suffers and he suffers greatly see those two ideas glory and suffering held in one space in the bible that's most of the time in the bible and this is one of the i think one of the west's biggest problems with the idea of god in our culture in a culture like ours we think how can anything that matters how can anything that's important, you know, glory, how can we get meaning from something like pain and anguish and suffering and evil and death, how do we hold that together? We're, we're very ill-equipped for that in our culture. Um, sociologists and anthropologists have done a series of studies, a lot of studies, comparing how different cultures prepare their members for suffering, loss, and grief, And when these studies are concluded, often what is noted is is how our contemporary secular Western culture is one of the worst at preparing its members to face suffering, pain, and grief. And yet, people need meaning. They're longing for it. Um, In fact, pioneering uh, social theorist Max Weber, he contends that all human beings are driven by a, quote, an inner compulsion to understand the world as a meaningful cosmos and to take a position towards it. Um, Anthropologist Richard Schroeder, he says human beings apparently want to be edified by their miseries as he's studying anthropology and all the cultures, human beings want to be edified by their miseries. Or put it, sociologist Peter Berger, he says this, every culture has provided a, quote, explanation of human events that bestows meaning upon the experiences of suffering and evil. Every culture says, here's what this means, and here's how you can get through it. And that's what makes our culture so dangerous. Um, as my friend, Dave Barnhart, you guys know him. I hope you'll get to know him more. He recently told me, he said, quote, the worst kinds of suffering is meaningless suffering. The worst kind of, of suffering is meaningless suffering. Meaningless suffering is so painful because as Weber says, we're driven to find meaning. We're driven to find it, and yet our culture is the worst at providing it. And because of this, in a sense... Suffering in the West is much, much, much worse than other places in the world, even though they have relatively less of the classic circumstances that cause suffering. We have a much higher educational standard. We have much better opportunities, much more money on average than other countries. For example, um, let me just give you this uh, little history example. In medieval Europe, approximately one out of every five infants died before their first birthday. And only one half of all children survived to the age of 10. The average family in medieval Europe buried family members, buried half of their children when they were still little. And the children died at home, not shielded away in some other place where you can't see or you can't feel it. And this is this kind of thing is unthinkable for us to even think about, let alone live, live through. Um, I was fascinated by something I read earlier this week. Dr. Paul Brand, who's a, a uh, pioneer, pioneering orthopa- orthopedic surgeon, and uh, he treats leprosy pa- patients, or he did when he was still practicing. He spent the first part of his medical career in India... And the last part of his, of his medical career in the United States. And he compared the two. And here's what he wrote about the United States when comparing the two. He says, In the United States, I encountered a society that seeks to avoid pain at all costs. Patients lived at a greater comfort level than any I had previously treated, but they seemed far less equipped to handle suffering and far more traumatized by it. Why? Why? The answer is that other cultures have provided its members with more robust answers to the question of what is the purpose of life anyway? Some cultures have said that the purpose of life is to live a good enough life so that I can escape the endless cycle of, of karma and reinc- the hell of reincarnation. I can finally escape this deadly cycle and, and enter into eternal bliss. Some have said that the meaning of life is enlightenment. Enlightenment to recognize the oneness of all things. And when I recognize that and that I am one, I will, have, I will finally have peace. Other cultures teach that life is about um, virtue and honor. Uh, you know, national, di- di- as a national hero, I think of the, um, the Japanese man that was found out in the jungles years after World War II had finished. And he, they found him. They, he thought the war was still on. He was hiding out they found him they told him the world, the war's been over for years and he came and did a press conference and he apologized he said i'm so i just feel so much shame that i did not die with the honor of, or have the honor of being of being killed in battle that was his purpose see other cultures teach that others say that life is about going to heaven to be with your loved ones when you die and the thing that the all of these examples that i've given have in common That's what I really want to to, to tune you into is that when it comes to suffering, in each of these worldviews, suffering can, no matter how painful or how devastating that suffering is, it plays a pivotal role in helping you achieve that purpose. It actually lends to it, it's part of it, it serves a purpose, it propels you on your journey towards your higher goal in life. It's something that's transcendent and meaningful. Our culture, the modern secular Western culture, doesn't have this kind of scaffolding when it comes to pain and suffering. In the secular view, the material world is all there is. This is all there is. Therefore, the purpose of life is to have the freedom to live, to live the life that makes you most happy. That's what we say in this culture. I want the freedom. Freedom is what it's all about. To live the life. And the, problem with, the problems with this worldview are vast when it comes to suffering. <laughs> when it comes to pain. It's, it is a complete, well, looking at the world this way, suffering can have no meaning. That's the bottom line. It is a complete interruption of your life. That's all it is. It it cannot be part of your story. It cannot be a meaningful part of your story. Therefore, suffering should be avoided at almost every cost. Look at how our country, as an example, has faced COVID-19 compared to other countries. We have looked at other countries that didn't, quote, didn't take it as seriously. And we've put narratives on that. Oh, those poor, regressive, uneducated people who are going through all this needless pain and suffering. And you need to understand, part of the reason is that they look at pain and suffering differently from the beginning, from the outset. We think, why aren't they avoiding this? But part of the reason is because they see it differently. They maybe see it as destiny, as a way of achieving something, as a way of of an eternal obstacle to get over that would get them to the next level, that would help them to escape. And when we face unavoidable, irreducible suffering, we have to import worldviews from other places to get through. In Seattle, you'll hear people talk about karma or Buddhism or Greek Stoicism or even Christianity, even though their beliefs about the nature of the universe, fundamental beliefs about the nature of the universe, don't line up with those worldviews. Why? Because their beliefs about the nature of the universe can't hold pain and suffering. They've got to import it from other places. It doesn't make sense. Why? Because we don't know how to, we, we as a culture, generally speaking, we don't know how to get meaning, purpose, or import from suffering. We are so ill equipped with this. We are so unequipped to even have this conversation. But the Bible, on the other hand, teaches that God is glorified, listen, you guys, not just despite suffering, but through it. I want to let that sit for a bit. That God defeats suffering with suffering. One scholar called this God's judo move on evil. That God uses the momentum of pain and evil and suffering against itself. How? Well, we see it in the Jesus story. Here's the idea Jesus had to suffer. Why? To prove that he was the glory of God, to prove him, to test him, to show what he was made of. He had to suffer to show the world that he is what the angels said he was from the beginning, the glory of God. In other words, as we have seen, misplaced glory causes suffering, but suffering also has an element, an aspect to it, where it proves what is truly glorious. It tests what's there. On the other hand, misplaced glory is the cause of suffering. You know, when we see, when we set our affections on things that, that are not God when we depend on ideas, people, career, money, happiness itself to give us purpose and meaning, let me ask you this, then what is suffering except when that stuff is stripped away? Then we really suffer. Life comes, fire comes and takes it away. And when that is our God, when that's our glory, oh, then we're in pain then we can't handle it. But on the other hand, in the stripping away, the real foundations of our souls are truly exposed, and the only thing left after the fire and suffering hits, if there is anything left, is what is truly glorious, what's truly there. Let me tell you where I'm getting this idea. Look at 1 Peter, I don't have it on the screen. I'll just read it to you. I'm getting this from 1 Peter chapter 3 or chapter 1 verses 3 through 9. Let me read it to you and listen. You'll hear what you'll hear my metaphor. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable. What's he talking about there? Something glorious. It's going to last. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. In other words, you have something that cannot be destroyed. How do we know? Look, he goes on. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, because it is, you have been grieved by various trials so that, the te- so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, is being tested by fire, that it may be found after it's tested, to result in praise, and here's our word, guys, glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him now, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining your faith, the salvation of your souls. What, is Peter, what Peter is saying is remarkable, I mean, I have goosebumps even. Peter is likening, let me just put it this way. Peter is likening Christians with saving faith in Jesus to gold filled with impurity. Think of the metaphor. And the suffering and the anguish they are facing, Peter says, is like fire that exposes the dross and brings it up to the top. Now, in a sense, the fire is... um, not biased. The fire's trying to destroy the metal that you put into it. It just can't. It's trying to destroy the metal that you put into it, but it only succeeds in destroying dross, what can't handle the heat, making the metal more pure and more glorious than before. It's a brilliant metaphor to describe life. In other words, mixed in with our faith, mixed in with your faith, mixed in with my faith in God, are all sorts of competing commitments for comfort, power, pride, pleasure, self. Mixed in. And they're largely hidden from you. Or maybe they're just abstract. You know they're there doctrinally, but you don't, the only thing that brings them out is pressure and fire, heat, Your faith is largely abstract and intellectual, maybe some of it not very heartfelt. You may believe cognitively that you're a sinner saved by grace, but actually, functionally, what's getting you through life is that you think you're a pretty good person. You think you're pretty capable, that you're pretty ethical. You, you can say all the right words on the Christianese, but really what's functioning, what's getting you through is that you're not as bad off as those people or as that guy or you wouldn't make those bad decisions and all of those things because we have work ethic or we have better morals or we're self-made people or whatever it might be. But underneath the denial, underneath the blindness, are things like, well, like we can't handle criticism, but we tend to deliver it harshly and unsensitively. These are, um, I listed things that I found in myself. (laughs) Uh, We're bad listeners. Uh, Not yet. I have a little bit more. Um, We're ungenerous people to the people that we think are foolish or that don't deserve it. But we are largely blind to these things. Even though they darken our own lives and they hurt the people around us, we're largely blind to those things. And then... Suffering comes along, and fire comes along, and what rises to the surface? What do we see? Self-pity, cowardice, selfishness, pride, fear, hatred, hopelessness, distrust. All of these impurities of the soul are drawn out and revealed by suffering and trials just like a furnace that draws out the impurities of unrefined metal ore. If anything is left standing, if anything is left standing, the Bible would say those things are glorious. Those are the things that matter. Others will be uh, destroyed completely, the Bible says, because they built their lives on, quote, wood, hay, and stubble. In other words, they thought other things mattered that didn't. They were driven for other things. They lived for other things. They wanted other things. They thought they needed other things. And they built their life on those things. And (laughs) life (laughs) takes those things away. The point is, after suffering, finally you see who you really are. And there's no way around it. In um, 1966... Elizabeth Elliott, who had been a missionary to the AUKUS of um, South American Amazon Rainforest, she wrote a novel entitled No Graven Image. And it's the story of a single woman named um, Margaret Sparhawk. And she had dedicated her entire life to translating the Bible for these remote, um, villages that, where their languages hadn't been written down yet, and a key a key figure to her work was a man in the book named Pedro, who knew both Spanish and the language of these hidden tribes in the, in the rainforest. And so he was this key person. He could translate the Bible from Spanish to these tribes. And she was working with him. And one day, she was on her way to see Pedro, and she found herself praising God. And, and she, she prayed. Here's the quote from the book. She prayed, "'I've been waiting, Lord, waiting and waiting. "'You know I waited a long time "'to be a missionary to the Mountain Indians. "'You seem to say translation and medical work, "'so you gave me Pedro.' Just being here today is an answer to prayer. She's saying that on the way, and she's just thinking about, in the book, she's thinking about all that it's taken her to get to this point. She's talking about her training, her education, the financial support from her friends and family just to get to this point. And she's thinking that because of Pedro, she will be able to reach about a million people with the gospel. So she's extremely, but when she gets there, when she gets to Pedro's house, she discovers that he's suffering from this infected um, wound on his leg. And she's a trained medical person, and she happened to have a syringe and penicillin. And he asked her for it, and she decides to give it to him. Um, and Pedro starts going to anaphylaxis. This, this, her, his whole body starts going into an allergic reaction. And he's convulsing and screaming in pain. And the whole family, his children, his wife, they all gather around. And his wife says to her, can't you see that he's dying? You've killed my husband. And this whole time, Margaret, as she's trying to tend to him, it's this dramatic part in the book, she's praying under her breath, Lord God, she says this. Here's a quote, Lord God, Father of us all, if you've never heard me pray before, hear me now. Save him, Lord, save him. And then Pedro dies. And the mission work stops. And the book ends like that. In fact, well, the book ends with Margaret outside of Pedro's grave. And here's what she said. She says, and God, what of him? I am with thee, he said to me, with me in this. He had allowed Pedro to die, or I could not then, nor can I today, deny the possibility that he perhaps caused me to destroy Pedro. And does he now, I asked myself there at the graveside, ask me to worship him? Some years later... um, Elizabeth Elliot was commenting on this book because it was very controversial, even in, in the Christian world. In fact, Christian publishers removed it from their bookshelves, refused to, to publish it. She got a lot of heat for this. And she was pointing out that the key to the whole book was one line, and I have the line for you. It says, God, this is Margaret's conclusion. Listen, she says, God, if he was merely my accomplice, had betrayed me. But if, on the other hand, he was God, he had freed me. And, and here's what Elliot, Elizabeth Elliott went on to say about that. She said the suffering in Margaret's life had revealed something that only suffering could an idol. The idol of the God who had always acted the way she thought he should. He was a God who always supported her plans how she thought the world and the world history should go. But Eliot went on to explain that if this is our God, it is a God made in our own image. It's a God of our creation. Such a God is merely a projection of our own wisdom, of our own self, of what we think. And in that way of operating, God is an accomplice. Someone we relate to as long as he does what we want. And if he does something else, what what happens? We get bitter. We get angry. We put him on trial. We crucify him. It's a problem with our culture is when we teach children, God is here to make you happy. Then when they get something like a flat tire, they get mad at God. (laughs) Like I said, she got a lot of flack for this book, and... um, but she got a lot of criticism, but she actually came out and said, "Actually," and the people said that this is far-fetched. But she actually came out and said that her um, the the character Margaret followed her own life and missionary story pretty closely. She wrote it based on herself. In her first years as a missionary, Elizabeth Elliot went to South America, and she met a man named Marcario, and Marcario was the linguistic key to their Bible translation, and he was senselessly murdered completely stopping their work. Later, a flood and then a theft robbed them, robbed them of their precious uh, card, card files. Years of work of translating on these files that they kept. It was all stolen, lost, all that information stolen. And it was after that that she married Jim Elliott, one of the young five missionaries that was speared to death while trying to reach an isolated tribe in the Amazonian rainforest. Here's what she wrote about it. In 1996, in a book called Through the Gates of Splendor, she writes the account, and she, she challenged both secular and traditional religious views of God and suffering and their simplicity. Here's what she said. She warned against us trying to find a, quote, silver lining. Here's what she said. Here's what Elliot said, with the authority to say it. She said, we know... That time and again in the history of the Christian church, the blood of the martyrs has been its seed. We are tempted to assume a simple equation here. Five men died. This will mean X amount of of, uh, Warani. That's the tribe that they were ministering to. This will mean X amount of Warani Christians. And she says this, perhaps so, perhaps not. God is God. You ready? She says, I dethrone him in my heart if I demand that he act in ways that satisfy my idea of justice. It is the same spirit that taunted, if thou be the son of God, come down from the cross. There is unbelief. There is even rebellion in the attitude that says God has no right to do this to these five men unless... And she talks about this idea of idolatry and how the fires of her suffering brought this in on her. That's all throughout her books and all throughout her work. It was a major, major lesson for her. This kind of idolatry is so hidden, isn't it? Behind Christianese and doctrine and all these wonderful things, it's so hidden until the fire hits and burns stuff away and what's left. And that's what makes the Christian story, you guys, so remarkable. Jesus is born, and heaven proclaims he is glorious. He's the one that matters. He is, the whole, he is the beautiful and pure, precious one of the universe. And then he lives a life of testing. Listen, God throws his own son into the fire for all the world to see what his son is made of. That's the story. God throws his own son into the fire and says, everyone look, everyone watch. He's born a peasant under an oppressive, tyrannical government. He's a victim of tyranny. He's economically oppressed with no opportunities to rise out of poverty. He lived an entire life of peasantry and poverty. He's born in a dark, cold cave. It's not sterile. There's no running water. There's no midwife, no epidural. When Noble was born, there was a stinking hot tub in our room. He was stigmatized by his community, rejected by society because of the circumstances of his birth or of his mother's inception. That reputation followed him and discounted his ministry his entire life. So he was misunderstood. He was hunted. His family fleeing to Egypt to try to keep him safe. So he was a refugee. He was betrayed by all of his friends. He was a victim of injustice, being put on trial for stuff he didn't do. And then he was whipped, beaten, spit on, ridiculed, mercilessly, verbal psychological abuse, and he was nailed naked to a cross. He was thrown into the fire of life. And what surfaced? What came out of Jesus in those moments? Think. For what in, in the all of that pressure, what did he say on that cross? Father, forgive them. What? For they know not what they do. That's what came out of him. He was shockingly others focused, even on the cross. Truly I say to you, he says to the thief on his right, today you will be with me in paradise. He's ministering to other people. Such care and concern. Mother, behold your son, he points to John. Son, behold your mother. In other words, take care of my mom. This is what he's doing under the most excruciating pressure that any human being on the planet has ever seen. This is what's coming up. Absolute surrender and trust. He's not bitter at God. He surrenders. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. In the garden of Gethsemane, he says, not my will but yours be done. Complete trust. Do you see what's happening? Jesus is born and thrown into the fires of suffering for all to see. And what surfaces is beauty. Dazzling beauty and purity and glory. And that's why I follow him. Christmas is showing the world. Christmas is proving to the world that Jesus is what matters. He's the only one who will last. And unless He's the one in your heart, you will be completely burnt up in this life. He's the only thing the fire can't take. Final point Christmasing with you. What does this mean for us? I'm Christmasing with you. Let this mind be in you that's also in Christ. What does this mean? Well, it means a few things. Let me go through some things that this means for us. It means that the suffering you are going through, or that you will go through, is going to reveal who you really are. It's going to pull up. There's things in you that you cannot see unless you go through the fire. And I hate to tell you this, Merry Christmas, (laughs) this is a step that can't be skipped. Remember the dross and the metal ore, it can only come out in the furnace. That's the only way. It's not inevitable. It is absolutely necessary that we are tested. There's no skipping this step. God doesn't, here's the idea, God doesn't author evil and suffering. He doesn't cause it in your life, but he will use it against itself in your life. He'll use it. A famous scripture for this is when Joseph's brothers, after selling him into slavery, they found him later to be the prime minister of Egypt. Their dad, um, Jacob, had died, and they thought that Joseph was going to get retribution and revenge, and they came to him and said, please have mercy on us. They had done this horrible thing. And you remember what Joseph said in Genesis chapter 50. He said, what you intended for evil, God intended it for good. It's this mysterious thing about suffering. It's this mysterious thing. God is doing something. From all the horrors of the Holocaust, he's using it to, the, to what comes out of you when you stub your toe or someone cuts you off in traffic. It's revealing something to you, from you. To the fights that you're getting in with your spouse, it reveals something to what you believe when those things come up. So many people, uh, this is why people have affairs. This is why people get divorced because they start believing that there is somebody out there that will be better than this loser and I'm I'm missing out on my best life now. And then the fire hits and none of those things are true. That means there's no there that means there's no such thing as meaningless suffering. If you're going to write something down, write that one down in all caps. There's no such thing as pointless or meaningless suffering. Secondly, it means that only Jesus in your life will withstand the fire. Only Jesus in your life will withstand the fire. Um, Four or five years ago, my family and I were in California, um, Christmas time and I got a phone call from my best friend, uh, a a person that I have literally grown up with, Dave Barnhart, who he had stood up on Christmas to bless the meal for his family, his uh, four children, and he started to vomit blood and fell over And the ambulance came and picked Dave up, and they did a scan, and they found that he had a brain tumor the size of a grapefruit in his brain, and that they thought it had been there since he was born, slowly growing, undetected except for they think it was pushing on certain glands and things that were causing his growth hormone to increase. If you meet Dave, you'll see that he's very, very tall. He's very, almost abnormally so. And they think that's probably, they, they, he said, looking back, and he, so many things made sense to him. <laughs> and I called him that night in the hospital. This is going to get me. And Dave said to me, I'm by myself. My family's all gone home. It's just me and Jesus. And he said, you know, Mike, I am so happy that I spent all those years centering my life on Jesus because now is where it counts, and he's here with me. He's really here with me when my family's gone, and I might lose my friends, and I might lose everything I hold dear, Jesus is the only one in this hospital room with me. You see, when the fire hit Dave's life, nothing else was standing. Not his children, not his wife, not his best friends, nothing else was standing except for Jesus. And you hear the angels of heaven say, he is the glorious one focus on him. How do you prepare for the suffering that will come, that you will encounter? How do you prepare for that? By centering your life on what matters. What is it in your life that you thought has mattered, but it doesn't compared to Jesus? Who is it? And here's where our culture will attempt to be get all fluffy and Christmassy on us. They'll say, yeah, things like family and friends. And, you know, he is no failure who has friends, Clarence says to, um, you know, I can't remember his name. In Wonderful Life, what's his name? What is it? George Bailey, of course. Those things are so great, but the thing is, here's, let's be real. Friends die. Family leaves. Anybody who's a parent knows that. Someone once told me once that parenting is just like one long, huge goodbye, and it's true. It's so true. You're holding him, and then he starts to crawl away, and then he walks, and he's getting more distance, and he's talking. He's talking about his dreams, and he's saying, you're he's having conversations with him, and he's learning more things, and he's talking about what he's going to do, and you realize, oh my gosh, it's coming. You're leaving me. <laughs> you're leaving As great as those people and ideas are, the fire will burn them up too. Um, We watched this video the other day, or yesterday, of these guys that are into overlanding. You know, it's a hobby where you transform your car into into something that can go off-roading. But you listen to these guys talk on this video, and they're like, for me, it's more than a hobby. It's a lifestyle. It's about freedom. And I'm thinking, oh man, here we go, idolatry world. Here we are. This is who I am. You know, they're putting their... Wait on that. And when the government goes crazy, I'll be out there in the woods in my car. Now, that's what they're saying. And you're thinking, until your car runs out of gas, and, yeah, and tree sap doesn't work anymore for fuel, and then you can't, you don't have your welder to weld it onto a thing, and you're, you're, you burn up. Or what about when your body breaks, and you can't do anything anymore? It's, the fire takes it away, and we're left With what? With what? What are you living for? What are we living for? That the fire can't take. But with Jesus, all of those things are infused with meaning. So you don't lose those things, really. They become, they get in their proper place. Overlanding becomes just that, a nice hobby. Money becomes just that, money. It's not my God. It's, it's there, it's a tool. I can let Nicole be free to be herself. I don't have to force her into some mold for me. There's freedom when God is my everything. Everything starts to come into place when I focus it on him. Christmas gives us greater resources. Um, Thirdly, I have to point this out. This is powerful. It means that no suffering is for nothing. The Christmas story introduces the Bible, but especially the Christmas story introduces us to another dimension. Do you notice that we almost skip it over? I don't know why, really, but we do. Um, we used to be more, way more into angels as a culture than we are now. Have you noticed that? There used to be, like, TV shows and, and like, angel gift shops and books and all. I mean, Christian bookstores used to be filled with stuff on angels and theology of angels, and now it's, I feel like we've swung to the other way. And, yeah, now we're into, no, I don't, I don't think we like to talk about anything. And yet, the Bible is filled with this other dimension, something else. One thing that we seem to miss throughout the Bible, but especially the Christmas story, is the presence of the angels. Um, and this is one of the particular shortcomings, I think, in our culture. We tend to think that this world is all that matters. And there... And, Your view of what comes next, of this other dimension, is huge, plays tremendous impact on how you suffer. If this world is all there is, then when it's taken from you, you're going to feel bitter and angry and upset and resentful. This is why some people have... They make drastic decisions because they're thinking this world is all there is. We just mentioned a a little bit ago, divorce and affairs and those types of things. They're thinking, I don't want to be stuck here my whole life. This is all there is. I want to get what I can. The Bible would say this is not all there is. This is fading. It's a a vapor. Christmas gives us some better resources. Um, hero, Hero of mine a woman named Joni Erickson Tata. Anybody heard of her? She was 17 years old. She suffered a diving accident and became a quadriplegic. 17 years old. All of her life in front of her. Dreams, all of those things. She's paralyzed from the shoulders down as a 17-year-old. And during the first two years of her injury... Joni experienced depression, bitterness, thoughts of suicide, doubts about her Christian faith, all of that. And when she was in a rehabilitation center in Baltimore, she shared a room with about three or four other young women. Perhaps you've heard the story. One of the other women, her name was Denise Walters. And Denise had been a happy, extremely popular 17 year old uh, senior in Baltimore, Maryland. And one day, she was bounding up the steps at her high school and she stumbled because her knees felt weak. And by the end of the day, she could hardly walk, so she went home thinking she was sick and she went to bed. By the time she woke up from, from her nap for dinner, she was paralyzed from the waist down. Not long after that, she went paralyzed from the neck down and then she went blind. Just like That. It was a rare uh, rapid progression, multiple sclerosis. And when Joni met her, Denise lay motionless in the room at the rehabilitation center, unable to move, see, and barely even talk. And her mom would come and visit Denise every night. They were Christians, and every night her mom would read the Bible to her and pray with her daughter. And Denise and her mom did this for eight years until Denise slowly and painfully died. Just like that. Joni um, shared how troubling this was for her. She was already dealing with her own suffering, obviously, asking questions like, "Why why did this happen to me? you know, I'm a Christian, I'm a committed person to Jesus, why, why am I going to be in a wheelchair for the rest of my life? How can God bring any good out of this? Why should I trust God if he allowed this to happen to me? All of those questions that anybody would go through. But she began to make progress and began to discover God in the midst of her own pain, but then Denise died, and she had particular trouble with this. Joni struggled most of all with this because As she wrote, here was a person who loved God and never complained and whose suffering seemed completely pointless. No one noticed her. No one saw her. No one knew how she was or knew how she lived before. Her suffering, she just went by and no one noticed and then she died and almost no one noticed that either. And Joni was like, what is that? What is that? When Joni heard that Denise had finally died, she, she uh, ended up sharing her struggle with some friends that came to visit her, and one of them opened the Bible and very wisely turned to Luke chapter 15 verse 10, which talks about angels rejoicing in heaven when uh, even one sinner repents. They also turned to Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10, where it says angels are looking upon what happens to the church, and if they would have been thinking of it, they could have turned to this passage, to Luke chapter 2, where angels are singing. See, Here's, this is the Christmas story. Here's the thing. The secular worldview says that this is all there is. This is all there is. The here and now, the material universe is the only reality. There is no transcendent, only imminent. There is no supernatural, just natural. That's all there is. But for Joni, this insight revived her spirit. Here's what she wrote, if I can do it. I get it. I lit up so her life wasn't a waste, I reasoned. Someone was watching her in that lonely hospital room. A great many someones, she says. Don't you see the difference between this worldview, Christianity, and the secular worldview? If Christianity is true, imagine, just as a thought experiment, imagine all your thoughts all your actions and all your deeds and all your ideas being displayed on a screen for the whole world to see do you think that would change the way you would live from day to day if you knew people were watching you all the time if you didn't have a private moment do you think that that would change your lifestyle on the way you would live you guys that's the message you're being wa- you're on tape we are being watched Everything we do is in front of billions of beings and God sees it too. Listen to this passage. Paul puts it this way. He says, for this, this light momentary affliction, you can fill in the blank with whatever it is you're going through or whatever you will, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal, are you ready? The two words are linked, weight of glory. Glory. I want to read it again. Listen, this light momentary affliction is what? It's preparing for us. In other words, it's doing something. It's doing something for you. It's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things which are seen, but to the things which are unseen. For the things which are seen are transient. They're passing away. But the things that are unseen are eternal. This is the truth that have given millions of sufferers world over hope, not the promise of education or a better way of living or more money or all of these types of other things. It's been, this is not all there is. What you're experiencing, the suffering that you've gone through from the beginning to the end is giving you hope. As Joni wrote about her friend Denise, here's what she wrote. Angels and demons stood amazed as they watched her uncomplaining, patient spirit rising like a sweet-smelling savor to God. Angels and demons stood amazed as they watched this woman suffer. When I was a, a boy, my first job was at a nursing home in Bozeman, Montana. I was, a, I was a, I like to call myself a DMO, a dish machine operator. And one of the people that was there was a man named John McCullough. John McCullough was a Christian musician. He was a blind Christian musician. He was born blind, but he met Jesus and he became a singer. He had an incredible voice. I used to listen to all of his tapes. One day, John was walking across the street and a driver hit him and left, hit and run, and left John a quadriplegic. And I remember on my breaks, I would go and I would sit with John and I would try to talk to him, and this is how it went. I would say, he was in his wheelchair, and I would say, John, is it a consonant or a vowel? Is it a consonant? And he would go, and I'd say, okay. First half of the alphabet, okay, second half, M-N-L-P. And when I would get to it, he would go, oh, and, I would, and I would spell out every sentence. I'd come back, John, I, my, my 10 minutes is up. I'll be back for my lunch. And we would continue it up and every day at the end of it. See, it spelled out Michael. Jesus loves you. Every time, every time. Do you know that Jesus loves you? Yes, John, I know that. No doubt John is with the Lord, but he changed, changed me forever. When the fire hit him, he was glorious. He was filled with glory. Finally, it means that this is how God is going to glorify himself in the world by Christmasing with you. Let me read this last passage to you. It was a brief point, but it's important. In your relationships with one another... In other words, how you interact with the world. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even the death on the cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and at every tongue uh, acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. In other words, this is how God is still Christmasing. In you. He is adventing all over the world, all over again through everybody, through you and me. This is the template. Here's my point. This is the template by which we live. It's not that suffering might happen. It, It will happen, and we glorify God by going into the fire and showing the world what's left at the end of it. That's what it means. When you suffer and all the rest is burnt away, the world will see what's left in you. And it's gotta be Jesus. Jesus. But this only works if you have the same mindset, the mindset of Christmas. If your mind... You know, there's that saying, the same sun that hardens the clay melts the wax. You know, have you heard that saying? In other words, the idea is, how come for some people suffering makes them bitter and for others suffering makes them better? Here's the key. It's the mindset. If you drink in the the lies of this world, that it's about freedom or it's about rights or it's about this or that or family and no man is a failure has friends and all of those good things whatever it might be if you buy into that the fire will will tear it take it away christmas says no, no 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 go deeper anchor those beautiful things on something that can last because the fire's coming the fire's coming And the world needs Jesus, and that's what they're going to see when the fire hits. This is our greatest witness. I would say this is why we're here. Think. What does this mean for COVID-19? And how we live through it. Why did God choose today for us to be alive in Seattle during this time of history? Why? I would say it's this, so he can advent through you. Why? If everything you're going through has meaning, why? He's Christmasing with you. The world will see what's really important and what really matters through you. And what you're going through is only making the weight of glory in eternity that much more beautiful and that much more pure. Don't live for just now, the here and now. This is a... Vapor, here today, gone tomorrow. (sniffs) Amen. Amen.